I think everyone's here that's going to be here tonight. Um, let me open this up in prayer and then we'll begin. Lord, we love you and we praise you for who you are, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity we have to look at your word. Um, I pray that you'll speak through me as we uh, study how to study your word, Lord. Um, I pray for everyone here that they continue, that we all continue to grow in our love and affections for you, Lord. And ultimately, our main desire out of these um, Wednesday night studies is to get to know you more, Lord, so that we may love and worship you fully. Lord, we love you and we pray these things in your name. Amen. All right. Uh, Tonight, as you can see on your note sheet, we're looking at the historical cultural context. Ah, doesn't that sound exciting? Um, I was telling Elizabeth this just earlier this evening that uh, even though hermeneutics is incredible and it's an important subject, it's not as fun, at least for me, uh, to teach on this as it is for um, theology, especially theology proper, like last semester was with the doctrine of God. Uh, because a lot of the stuff that we're talking about is very much just informational, it's straightforward, and then it's into practice. And so near the end of this semester, it's going to be a lot more practice. So on this front end, we're giving you a lot of information. And then on the back end, we're going to actually spend a lot more time working, taking these principles and working them out through texts and scripture. Um, but there's not as much discussion necessarily on this front end of stuff. Um, but still, we're talking about history uh, tonight. Who likes history in here? Does everyone like history? When I, when I think of history, I think of Jason not liking it. <laughs> um, I saw Lily shake her head, yes, that you like it. Um, I like history uh, to an extent, right? For us as Christians, what is the role, what is the purpose of history? How should Christians use history? Should we use it? Yes. Yes, yes. Doesn't it help us understand as we go along, we know the history of, of what's happened when and why it happened and all that. Yeah, that's, that's really good. So it, it does help us understand context of what we're studying or what has happened, when it's happened, um, why something may have happened. Um, so we use history as Christians as a tool, right? It's a tool that we're able to use for our studies to better know God uh, in time, right? God works, as we all know, in history. Uh, this book, this Bible that we study, um, is an account of so many different events and how God has worked in history past. And we know he's still currently working, right? So history is a very helpful tool for us to use um, to have better context to see how God has worked, uh, to learn more about God. One of the things that you could really learn about God as you study history is God's faithfulness, right? God has faithfully 
uh, preserved his word throughout history. Uh, God has faithfully been there for his people throughout history. Um, I really like to read uh, biographies of different individuals who have gone before us uh, in the church, uh, different Christian leaders, because you see how God has transformed their lives and how God has used them um, to continue uh, the gospel, to continue the Great Commission, to bring out um, his word. So that's what we're talking about tonight is history and how we could use it as Christians as a tool. Uh, but specifically, we're using it as a tool to interpret the Bible, right? History is important in order to interpret the Bible because, as I had said, um, this Bible is full of historical, real historical events and stories and peoples that's taking place. Um, so it uh, is helpful to understand a little bit of what the background is as we study the specific passages. All right. First, on your note sheet, if you're following along, what is historical or the historical cultural context? And then why is it important? Uh, we kind of talked about those things. I think what it is is very straightforward. Why is it important? We kind of talked about that. Here are some definitions or um, quotes I've pulled out uh, from the Duvall and Hayes text, Grasping God's Word. That's one of uh, one of the main textbooks people would use in Bible school for hermeneutics. It's a textbook I used when I went to Moody for my undergrad. Uh, but you could see the first one, he's answering the question, what is the historical cultural context? It says, this kind of context involves the biblical writer, the biblical audience, and any historical cultural elements touched on by the passage itself. Notice it says this kind of context. What other kind of contexts are there? when you study scripture. We'll be looking at the other kind of context next week. What other kind of context can you look at? So one of them's historical. One's historical. <laughs> yeah, what's the other one? We always say context, 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 right? When you look at a passage, when you want to study it within the context, we're partly talking about the historical cultural context, but we're also talking about another type of context. The rest of the, the, the statements in this passage. The rest of the context. Was it literary form? Or yes, yes. I think you guys, yeah, definitely were pulling it out. Um, the context in relation to the other words and statements, the entire book itself, the literary context is what we will be talking about next week. Um, but tonight it's only one type of context, the historical cultural context is what we'll be talking about tonight. Um, and then why is it important? Uh, this statement, I think, really pulls it together well uh, in answering that question, again, by Duvall and Hayes. It says, since we live in a very different context, we must uh, recapture God's original in intended meaning as reflected in the text and framed by the ancient historical cultural context once we understand the meaning of the text in its original context, we can apply it to our lives in the ways that will be just as relevant. So notice how it says, once we understand the meaning of the text in its original context. This is something we've been talking about already so far. Um, we have to try to get to what the original context was, or the original meaning. What was the author meaning? What was the authorial intent? 
of a certain passage. That's what we have to try to get to first, right? And once we are able to grasp that a little bit, then we could start to bring it over onto our side, into our context, and apply it for us today. Um, So only once we get the original context, we can apply it to our lives in, in ways that will be just as relevant. All right. Um, also, one other thing I want to talk about really quick within this statement says, once we live, or since we live in a very different context, I think it was when Pastor Jason was teaching, uh, he talked about um, a bridge that we have to build. We have to um, build the hermeneutical bridge uh, to bridge it from their context, the original audience context, to our context. And it has to be a bridge because there's a nice river dividing the two. And a river, uh, within the river, it could be wide or narrow. And some of the things that might make it wide are language. These are the differences between our context and their context. Language, we speak a different language. Culture, that's something we'll be talking about tonight. Right, geography, we live in a whole different part of the world. Um, And the list could go on and on. So these are the differences. So these are the things we need to recognize in first in order to pull out the original context, the original intent, what the authorial intent was, is, so that we could apply it to our lives. All right, so this is why it's important, and this is what it is. Uh, and this is a tool we're able to use as Christians to not just become historians, right, but to better understand God and understand more of the nuances, more of the tone behind the language of the text um, by understanding the historical context. Uh, We'll be looking at a passage in Galatians a little bit later this evening uh, to demonstrate how a historical, understanding the historical context of the passage helps us better understand even the tone of the text itself. Uh, so like I said, we'll get to that. Uh, three components with uh, components to the historical cultural context. Um, I pulled these three that we'll be looking at in this section from Kossenberger's text. Uh, Kossenberger was a professor, or is a professor, um, was Jason's professor at Southeastern, some Southeastern, and I also had him at Midwestern uh, Seminary. Um, I, I think I told Jason that he must have realized that Midwestern was better than Southeastern. That's why he they switched. Why. Yeah, so they brought both of them over, so he realized. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I'm, it was kind of cool that Jason and I were able to have the same professor and we were able to talk about that. Um, so, but his text uh, is where I pulled these three components for the historical cultural context. So the first one is simply looking at the timeline, right, the chronology, uh, when things took place. Uh, from his text, I, he had a lot of different charts, and I put all these charts together, and I have this in your note packet. Uh, so right here, uh, I have a footnoted which book it's from, down underneath, and you can see what pages it's on. But here's... Uh, a nice chart, roughly, of the timeline of different 
biblical events, um, and also extra-biblical events, things that are just well-known in history, in timeline with other biblical events. So you can see there's the Old Testament, then goes to the intertestamental period, uh, which is known as the 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and New Testament. I have that in here. You can see Alexander the Great is mentioned in this timeline. So it's kind of cool. And you can see books of the Bible with different years. And it goes all the way to 70 AD with the destruction of Jerusalem. So if you want to use this as a tool, just to help reference uh, as you study God's word, uh, this is a really good tool uh, to help you with the historical cultural, more so the historical context, right? When something took place in relation to something else, when something else took place in scripture. So you could be looking through that. Uh, I thought this was kind of cool. Within uh, Kossenberger's book, Biblical Interpretation, uh, he looks to 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1. And I have that on your note sheet. Does someone want to read that verse for us? We're talking about chronology still, just how biblical scholars have ideas of where, how to date different events. Um, but does someone want to read 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1 for us? Right on your note sheet. In the 400 years and 480 years after people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of King Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which was the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. All right. So uh, you could see this quote from the biblical interpretation book. It's referring to this passage that Nancy just read for us. It says, correlation of data from extra... External sources with the biblical record places this date, this one that's been referenced in 1 Kings chapter 6, at 967 BC. Utilizing other biblical information, we can determine rather well-established general chronology of, for the Old Testament, stretching from the birth of Abram at 2166 BC to the end of the Old Testament era in the closing decade of the 5th century BC. Um, so scripture is very helpful and detailed in giving a lot of those types of details. When we read scripture, maybe through our Bible reading plan, right, this sometimes is the details that bore us, uh, that we try to just quickly get over. I mean, some people might really like it, uh, this in the genealogies, but the, this type of, these types of details are incredibly important and helpful uh, to establish a historical context within the chronology, right? To give us a time frame of when these things took place. Uh, so I thought that was interesting, and I wanted to give you that timeline that is in Kossenberger's book. So let's look at this question together. Why would it matter to look at the biblical text along its timeline? Why is, would it matter? So I'm reading in Exodus, right? Yeah. And I keep thinking, wow, it's been like 400 years since they entered into Egypt and now they're leaving Egypt. And then I think about how old the United States is. Mm -hmm. And I think, wow, like, so to me, like, knowing that it's been 400 years and yet they still hung on to their names and their family lines, even though nobody told them to know where the family lines, 
It just makes it, like, to me, it makes it... Puts into perspective. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, imagine that. 400 years... So think about 400 years ago from now. Like, that's like, ancient. I know my ancestors from 400 years ago. Exactly. Yeah, that's incredible. So, I mean, I think it is cool to be able to see how things have tied together. Um, I was one... I remember when I was in 10th grade in my public high school, I had an opportunity to make my decide what project I wanted to work on, and there was just a list of different things that would meet the expectations for it to count towards this project. I forget what, exactly what the intent was, but I was able to make um, a timeline of the genealogies of the uh, kings of Israel and Judah within that. And so I thought that was really cool, and so I've always, I think, enjoyed the history of things and how things have tied together. Uh, because, again, right, this is something we as Christians could use to see how God has been faithful throughout time itself. Um, and it makes it a lot less lonely, right? So, I mean, this is just a good application for us. Um, when, hopefully this isn't your, where you find yourself now, um, because we have such a great church family. But when you feel like you're the only one actually following the Lord, maybe in your workplace, um, or where you feel like everyone around you doesn't desire to obey the Lord, to live for him, it, it gets difficult for us sometimes too. Uh, but I think that's why history is really great when you just read people who have gone before us. I mean, like these are different struggles that others have gone through as well. Um, and this is why I said earlier, biographies are incredible. Uh, and you could see uh, the vulnerability of people within biographies. Obviously, people who have passed away, and so um, people who've written about them uh, can make it a little bit more vulnerable in some situations with their conversion experiences and things like that. But I think by reading history and seeing how God has worked throughout time uh, sometimes makes it encourages you. At least it does for me. So, uh, Why would it matter to look at the biblical text along its timeline? I think, I mean, there's so many different reasons we could put in that. Uh, second question here. What are some specific passages in scripture where it would be helpful to understand the earlier historical events. I think I worded that question kind of weird. Um, what I'm asking is, what is, so what are some passages in scripture that you could think of, some stories or different, uh, maybe things in the New Testament or Old Testament, where you need the context of an earlier event where it might refer to an earlier event to understand the later event. Ruth, when she's being redeemed and she has to, they have to ask the first person before they can go to the second person, and then looking back into the law and understanding why she even needed to be redeemed in the first place. Okay. Okay. So that's an example. Um, right. I want, with this question, I want to show the importance of the timeline of Scripture. Know that the people... Um, 
believe the spies, right, the ten spies that said, no, we shouldn't take the land, it wouldn't make much sense as to why they're wandering around for 40 years, I mean, right? Yeah, yeah, that's another, that's a great example, right? So for us, when we go to a, a passage in Scripture, these are examples of why the historical context is important and many times we don't need to look beyond Scripture itself to find out the historical context. We just need to look earlier in Scripture, right? Because we see, we have the history of the Israelites in, in Scripture. Um, we have the historical books in Scripture. Um, one that I came up with was when Christ was crucified, right? The veil the cur- or the curtain was torn in two in the temple, um, and just understanding the significance with that, with the Holy of Holies and separating that, right? There was no more need for that separation uh, because through the death of Christ, this is a, a historical context for the New Testament passage that shows the theological significance of it. Um, so that's another example, right? So the chronology is incredibly important in order to help establish a historical context. And like I said, many times we don't necessarily need to even look beyond Scripture in order to understand or find these historical contexts. Any others? It bothers me sometimes because when I'm reading and I'm seeing the mistake that the Israelites are doing and really destroying their country, I see it happening here too. Like I can, you know, I see that in a lot of it's lack of faith and people not believing and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But it just keeps on going on. Nobody seems to learn from it. Yeah. I mean, we have so many people to learn from in Scripture and how God deals with sin and corruption. And we know that God never changes and he is still a holy and perfect God. And he is still going to deal with sin. Sin. Uh, the same, right? Okay, yeah. So I think with this as well, we can come up with dozens of examples, and I think the point is taken, hopefully, um, for this one, right? Uh, Why it's important for the chronology. Uh, Second, archaeology. I have not studied a whole lot of archaeology, I think it might be fun too, but it's not necessarily something I am incredibly interested in. Um, but archaeology is important to help us today, right? Um, verify a lot of things that Scripture talks about, things that we're finding out today. Uh, and one thing I have read about, and it was also mentioned in one of the Hermeneutics books. Actually, I don't remember. Uh, was one of the kings in the book of Daniel, as you can see, I have it written on uh, your note sheet, Belshazzar, King Belshazzar. For the longest time, many um, non-Christian scholars uh, would critique the book of Daniel in the sense that there was no evidence ever of King Belshazzar. So it sounded like this is, was an error in scripture, um, that scripture talks about this king, there's no evidence anywhere that this king ever existed. And then there was something found, I believe it was a clay, on a clay pot where it was mentioned 
um, of the king Belshazzar and uh, his rule. And I don't have a whole lot of details on that, but you could look that up if you're interested. But this is just one example of where there's archaeological finds that do help verify um, scripture. I mean, one of the biggest ones I don't even have on here are the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? The Dead Sea Scrolls. I mean, we have the entire um, scroll of Is- or Isaiah, I almost said Israel, of Isaiah uh, found in uh, Qumran with the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so that was a significant find to, uh, for our biblical scholars and to help verify uh, that the Bible that we have is still the same. It hasn't changed um, because these are some of the oldest manuscripts uh, that were found uh, and it's still the same and it still has Isaiah 53 in it, right, with the suffering servants. Um, so, I mean, these are just some examples of things that have been found um, that we could use as Christians' archaeology um, to help with that. And then the next one, the third component is cultural background. So we've been talking about the historical things, and now uh, we're getting into the cultural background. Uh, just like with anything in history, there's primary sources and there's secondary sources. Primary sources are the sources uh, talking about the culture and the events of something that w- were there, that were written down when those things took place. Right. So for us as Christians... Scripture, like I said, is one of the main primary sources we have on culture of their cultural background. Uh, so you can see I've written down your note sheet. Uh, primary sources include scripture, but it, it's not just scripture, right? In other ancient Near Eastern literature, uh, and I have Dead Sea Scrolls listed on here, uh, because the Dead sea, Dead sea Scrolls included other books as well that weren't just scripture. Um, we have the Pseudepigraphia, the Apocrypha, and writings by Josephus was a historian in the first, going into the second century, that wrote a lot about the Israelites. And so there's a lot of extra biblical um, material as well that help um, us, help the scholars develop a cultural background on, on Scripture and the Israelites and first century um, Jewish culture. But for us, right? We use scripture, obviously. This is our main primary source. But for us, we use many other secondary sources. Um, and you can see I have them listed here. We have things like Bible handbooks um, a couple years ago, maybe just one year ago. Uh, no, it was for in 2020, so it was a couple years ago now. Um, when the Sunday school teachers went off of the um, normal Lifeway literature we provided, um, Bible handbooks for them to help prepare their lessons um, because it was a little bit more involved since they weren't just following the literature. And so that was one tool this, of secondary sources that we gave them in order to um, help with their lessons so they could prepare and by looking at the historical cultural background. Obviously, we have like other items like Old Testament, New Testament introduction and surveys, um, commentaries, Bible atlases, Old Testament, New Testament history, um, histories um, that are that comes in different book forms. I had a stack in my office, um, and I was going to bring them up to show some examples, but then I'm like, well, I don't need to show examples. I have them written down, so it's fine. And I actually have some listed on your 
note sheet as well on the back. So if you see on the next page, I have secondary resources to help with historical cultural context. I have uh, five other items there listed, um, just so you have some examples for yourself. Right, so there are tools that we use. History, we use history as a tool to better know and understand God, right? What we talked about last semester, scripture is God's what type of revelation? Do you guys remember? What type of revelation is scripture? Special. Special revelation, as opposed to general, right? Yes. Uh, so there are many different tools that we use to help us understand God's special revelation. Um, but we also need to recognize, and this is something we'll be talking about later, um, how we need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit as well. It's all part of this process. Um, it's not just up to us to figure out all these things, but historical context is incredibly helpful with these things. And Here's a list of questions I put out. Answer, answer questions such as, who was the author? Right? These are general questions. Like if you don't know where to start, if you're preparing a lesson in developing the historical cultural context, if you don't know where to start, uh, these are great passages um, to, or not passages, questions to begin to answer to start at, right? Who was the author? What was his background? When did he write? So the timing is incredibly important because we talked about chronology, right? In relation to other events. Uh, what was the nature of his ministry, of the author's ministry? What kind of relationship did he have with the audience? Why was he writing? I mean, that's an incredibly important question, right? I mean, that's getting to the very purpose of the book, of the biblical book. Who was the biblical audience? What were their circumstances? How was their relationship? How was their relationship to God? What kind of relationship did they have with each other? And what, or are there any other historical cultural factors that might shed the light on the book? So these are just different examples. Um, are there other types of questions that maybe you guys use yourself, maybe in your own personal um, devotional time to help get to the intent of a passage? You could go beyond just the histor historical cultural uh, background with this. What are some types of questions you ask yourselves when you study God's word to try to faithfully interpret scripture? I look at the notes of the bottom of the Bible, bottom of the page. What was that? My Bible has, my, my study Bible at home has a lot of notes at the bottom of the page. Oh. Explaining what things are in different passages. If I don't understand it, I go there. Yeah. And sometimes it refer me to there, to somewhere else, and somewhere else. Different, yeah. It's also explained, or maybe used in a different way, but explained the same way. That helps. Yeah, I mean, study Bibles are incredible. You could put study Bibles on the secondary sources, right? their notes within the study Bibles. Um, that's another great tool. I, I just don't carry it here anymore because it's too heavy. Yeah. So I'm it's, this little one. Yeah, yeah, I understand that. It's funny because I bought Elizabeth a study Bible and she says also it's 
gets too heavy <laughs> because it's huge. It's way bigger than mine. Um, but I wanted to buy her the best one, of course, but it made it huge, though, as well. So, um, yeah. What, what are some other people's thoughts? What are some questions you ask yourselves in order to help you in interpretation? Like I said, it doesn't have to be specifically tied to trying to find out the historical cultural background. So why the repetition? Like a lot of times in a passage, you'll see repetition. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or so, like where yeah. something is quoted from. Like oftentimes it's like Jesus or somebody's quoting something from elsewhere. So going and seeing where it was the first time. Yeah. So what you mentioned um, kind of goes along with the historical context, right? Because by you asking that, it puts it in place then of when something else was mentioned in the timeline of things, right? And then with what Chris said, uh, why words are repeated gets at the literary context, right? Why is the Apostle Paul uh, repeating this word over and over and over? What is the point he's trying to get at, right? So we're talking about, you guys mentioned, came up with examples of the two different types of contexts, um, what are some other questions you guys ask yourselves as you try to interpret scripture? Why is the therefore therefore? <laughs> yeah. I think whenever I hear that, I'm always going to think of Pastor Jason again. <laughs> whenever you see the therefore, you have to ask yourselves what it's there for. <laughs> yes, and again, that gets to the literary context. Um, what are, what's something else? There's one question I always ask or tell the students that they should be asking themselves. Um, I think you guys, why is it told? Why is it told? Okay. What's the objective? Yeah. What, why is the author saying this? And not just saying this, but saying it this way. Okay, yeah. Um, any others? It's literary, but I'm big on how does it fit. How does it fit, yeah. I mean, that's fine with being literary because we're talking about context right now. Uh, how does this fit within um, this section, this chapter, and then this whole book, right? You have to look at, start small and build out. And then maybe even go beyond the whole book and say, how, how does this fit within um, maybe if it's the Apostle Paul in his other writings and his other epistles, and then ultimately how does it fit in with the entire scripture doing biblical theology at that point, right? Uh, I think one of the important questions you should ask yourselves always as you're trying to find the intended meaning of the text is what does this passage teach me about God, about the character of God? Um, Because... what is, who is this book about, right? It's ultimately about God and him revealing himself to us uh, so that we can know him, contemplate the things of God. This is what theology is, right? We, we're studying how to study God's word, hermeneutics, so that we can do theology, so that we can think of God and know God, so then therefore it could lead to worship. So then ultimately the whole goal is to grow our affections for the Lord as we read God's word and we become more amazed with who he is based on what he has done, based on his holiness, his faithfulness, his goodness, his mighty power, right? All of these things so that ultimately the end goal is worship. So this is how hermeneutics, theology, worship all fit together. Um, 
But that's the one I always tell the students, right? What is this teaching me about the character of God? Um, but all of these other types of questions here are incredibly important, right, in order to establish the historical context. Um, all right, practice here. After hearing the historical context of Galatians, what new information can you use when unpacking the meaning of Galatians 3.1? So everyone turn to Galatians 3.1. And I'm going to just verbally, uh, since we, I don't have enough um, Bible uh, handbooks or things like that for you guys to use at this moment. So I'm just going to verbally share with you guys some of the historical context of the book of Galatians. And then we're going to look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, uh, and talk about it. So let me go there really quick. Galatians is one of my favorite books of the Bible. I think it's definitely the most marked up book in my Bible. Um, but Galatians 3, 1. So I'm going to talk about the historical context in the recipients of this letter uh, and when this letter was written. So there are two theories with the book of Galatians of who the Galatians are. Uh, there is the North Galatia theory and there, there's the South Galatia theory. Uh, the North Galatia theory obviously suggests that Paul wrote this book to the people who lived in the northern part of the territory of Galatia. Uh, Galatia is located in modern-day Turkey, kind of in the middle, and it was a province, a Roman province, and the North, like I said, North Galatia theory suggests that this letter is intended for the ethnic Gauls, um, the Celtic people, actually, who migrated from Europe over to the Turkey area around 200-some years before Christ was actually born. Um, and so they became the Gauls, the Galatians, and then this territory was named after the ethnic uh, Gauls who lived in the northern region. And then there's the South Galatia theory, uh, which consists of many different cities um, that we read about in the book of Acts, uh, specifically within uh, Paul's first missionary journey in chapters 13 and 14 in the book of Acts. So if you want to read his first missionary journey, you read Acts 13 and 14. And he's visiting in that first missionary journey a lot of the region within the southern area of Galatia. Um, and this region were not made up, was not made up of the ethnic goals. Um, it was more of a diverse uh, group there. And so the question is, who was this letter written to? Was it written to the northern territory, to the ethnic goals, or was it written to the southern territory? Uh, the reason why this question is interesting is because it determines when it was written. And then if it determines when it was written, it determines then, well, why did Paul include this in the book and not this in the book in relation to other historical events? So, what comes right after Acts chapter 14? Acts 15. Yes, that's what I wanted you to say. <laughs> what happens in Acts 15? Does anyone know? What is Acts 15 all about? If you need help, you could turn there and look at the 
heading. The Jerusalem Council. What happens within the Jerusalem Council? What's the Jerusalem Council about? It's one of the earliest um, councils in Christian history, obviously, because it's written right in the book of Acts. Gentiles are involved in the discussion. What about Gentiles? Whether they need to be circumcised or not, right? How much of the law do the Gentiles who are becoming Christians, how much do they need to participate in? Do they need to be circumcised? This is what the Jerusalem Council is about. All right. What is the book of Galatians about? The book of Galatians, right, there's these agitators who are coming in and messing things up. Paul has gone to these people, whoever they are, whether the northern uh, area or the southern area of Galatia, uh, there's these people coming in after Paul had already established a church that are preaching a false gospel, right? And these individuals, these agitators, are called the Judaizers. And these Judaizers are coming in and they're saying, You sure could follow the gospel, follow Jesus Christ, but yet you also do need to be circumcised. You do need to be. Following the dietary laws, you, knew, you do need to be following these Old, um, Old Testament laws. All right, so the question becomes, is the Jerusalem Council, which is what the entire um, book of Galatians addresses, the exact same topic, is the Jerusalem Council mentioned in the book of Galatians? It's not. All right, so that's, that's a good piece of evidence. It's not mentioned. Um, was Paul involved in the Jerusalem Council? Well, yes, that was a major discussion. Um, so you should wonder, well, why was the Jerusalem Council not mentioned in the book of Galatians if that was the exact same topic that Paul was addressing? Well, I would propose because he wrote the book of Galatians before the Jerusalem Council happened, okay? Uh, when could he have written it then? He had to have visited these people first, right? As I said, he went on his first missionary journey in chapters 13 and 14 in the book of Acts, which happens all before the Jerusalem Council. Who is he visiting in chapters 13 and 14? He's visiting all these different places in the southern Galatia territory. Um, and so I would propose it is the southern Galatians, um, Territory. All right. So there's, there's a lot there. Also, another piece of evidence is how did Paul travel from place to place? Well, he used a boat. On foot, right? He was a Roman citizen, and he used the Roman roads, right? He utilized what was there. He used the Roman roads um, to get from one place to another place. There were no Roman roads going up to the northern territory of Galatia that at least scholars believe at that time. But there was plenty of roads in the southern territory. Um, Also, the Galatians, or the Gauls, the ethnic Gauls, were known as the barbarians. What What does barbarian mean? Uncivilized. Uncivilized? Why are they not uncivilized? What was that? Because they are not Greek speakers, right? They have their own language. 
Uh, they are non-Greek speakers, so they are the barbarians, right? What was that? We are children. Yes, it's true. Um, but in their his, uh, historical context, they were not looked at as sophisticated people because they couldn't speak the Greek language. I'm talking about the ethnic individuals up north, right? So no one wanted to be associated as an ethnic goal. They were the barbarians. We don't want to be associated with them. We speak Greek. We are more civilized. And so, now let's look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. Um, I believe this is written to the Southern Territory uh, region for all the evidence I suggested. And Paul is frustrated with them, right? Because they're listening to these agitators, these um, Judaizers who are preaching a false gospel, and they're listening to them. How dare they? They're turning to a different gospel. And so, verse 1 of chapter 3 says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Was it before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed and crucified? And I mean, all throughout this book, you just hear his anger, right? His frustration with them and wanting to bring them back to the true gospel. All right, so with the historical evidence that I presented, what is, um, let's look at the question again. Um, How did I word it? After hearing the historical context of Galatians, what new information can you use when unpacking the meaning, the nuance, maybe more of the tone of Galatians 3.1. I would say he's angry. Yes, he's angry. Because he has already preached about Jesus being crucified, and they apparently have believed it. And now they're being taken away by his other stuff that's coming in. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's 100% true, right? Um, I think that we were able to tell he was angry maybe before the historical context, but is there anything extra that this historical context is showing us that we would not have known otherwise? Comparing him to the northern ones, the foolish ones? Yes. By the very fact that he's calling them Galatians, he is insulting them. They don't want to be called Galatians. It's interesting because uh, Acts... Who wrote the book of Acts? Luke. Luke knows that they don't like to be called Galatians. Luke never refers to them as Galatians. When he records the missionary journey and all everywhere um, Paul goes, he never refers to uh, the people who live in the south as Galatians. He refers to them by their proper names, their towns. Um, and so here we see within Paul's frustration... Obviously, we see him being frustrated with who has bewitched you. But even before that, oh, foolish Galatians. We see within foolish, he's frustrated. But even within the word Galatians, he is using a term um, to even there to even express his anger towards them by comparing them to the barbarians, um, which I think is interesting, right? So this is an example of a historical context uh, 
that you, we would not know about that shares a little bit more light, share, um, shines a little bit more light on this passage and the tone of it. Um, so I thought, I thought that was an interesting one. So uh, has anyone heard of that, though, before? I remember when I was looking through this and uh, writing some commentaries that I was bringing that out. I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. I never understood that. But when you understand in light of everything, it makes sense. The intro to Galatians here has sentences. Who were they? They were personal acquaintances among whom Paul had worked. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's probably why he got so frustrated with them. Yes. Yeah, so he knew them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he visited them visited them during his first missionary journey. So, all right. So we talked a lot about the importance of of historical context. Um, Now let's look at the dangers associated with studying background. Um, At first glance, right, or at first thought maybe, we might not think there are any dangers, right? I mean, we're supposed to study History. This is what we've been talking about the whole time. This is a tool we need to use in order to better know God. Um, as you can see, uh, these three here were the ones suggested, um, brought out in the Grasping God's Word again text. Um, so number one, the danger, watch out for inaccurate background information. Uh, there are things that sometimes become... Um, just more of a legend in how something might have been with actually no historical backing to it. Uh, So this is an example here. Who wants to read Matthew 19, 23 through 24? Someone turn to Matthew 19, 23 through 24 and read it out loud for us. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with the difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Hmm. So it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I remember hearing this when I was in high school. This saying here, some have explained that the camel's gate was a small gate in the wall of Jerusalem through which a camel could squeeze if its load was removed and the animal got down on its knees. And so people would refer to this as a historical context to understand the passage that was just read and would say, well, we're not at, that passage isn't actually talking about an eye of a needle, but it's referring um, to that camel gate. And it's difficult for a camel to get through that camel gate, but, I mean, it is possible. Um, has anyone heard of this before? Yeah, okay, there's people shaking their head. And so this is an example, again, of the Vaughan Hayes brings out and say, well, there's actually no historical evidence for this, which is interesting. Uh, so this is an example of um, inaccurate background information. I mean, that... Uh, that there was no camel gate like this that was suggested. 
Um, and ultimately, the passage is actually referring to how it sounds plainly, an eye of a needle. Um, referring to the biggest animal that would have been around during that time, a camel, and the smallest opening that you could think of, um, an eye of a needle. Second one, evaluating the background of the text above the meaning of the text. Uh, Say, if you interpret that literally, you, the, the comparison, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle mm -hmm. than it is for a rich man to enter into heaven. Okay, so no camel will ever go through the eye of a needle. And that's easier than rich men, so no rich man will ever go to heaven. Yes. That's, that's, the, that's, that's the logic. That's the logic. Yes, and so therefore, with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible, right? And that's where it ultimately goes with the text, that salvation on our own, no matter how powerful you are as a rich man, no matter who you are in this world, you can never get to heaven. This is why we need Christ. So that, that's the point of the text. You want to look more at some of those. Uh, David Credo has a book out, Urban Legends mm. um, of the Bible. That'd be interesting. Forty, I think it's forty misconceptions uh, related to stuff like this and the different types of. The, he he does some good exegesis on uh, agape love and phileo love and mm -hmm. whether or not there's a big difference and one is superior to the other. Nope, there is no. Um, correct. <laughs> There's actually four uh, Greek words for love, and you could say one's more romance, one's more family, one's more friendly, and one's more with God type of love, and they're all extratical fallacies to make yes. those distinctions. And all of those chapters are four to six pages, so if you want a hmm. quick review, Urban Legends of the Bible by Croteau, C-R-O-T-E-A-U. That's interesting, I didn't hear that book. Huh. That would be interesting. Yeah, so there is probably a lot of them that we don't even realize that are inaccurate. Um, and this is why study is important, right? Uh, this is why we need to, when we think we know something, try to make sure we actually know it. <laughs> um, and know it accurately and not just allowing us to be a part of spreading this misinformation of historical context of scripture because then if we are we're individuals who are also then present or um, misrepresenting or misinterpreting scripture for others uh, so we teach it wrongly all right so evaluating point two evaluating the background of the text above the meaning of the text um, elevating, not evaluating, elevating the background of the text above the meaning of the text. So this is ultimately when we um, get things out of perspective and want to become historian gurus over um, the purpose of um, coming to know God, right? We use history as a tool. It's a means to an end. It's not the end. And then three, uh, which is like two, uh, do not let yourself slowly evolve into nothing more than a walking database of ancient facts. <laughs> I thought that was interesting how it was stated. Um, 
So it's good to know history, right? It's good to know how God has worked. But if we elevate that above God himself, then we're missing the whole point. Uh, I think this could easily happen within historical theology, right? I am studying um, a certain person in history, uh, a guy named John Owen, who lived in the 1600s, born 1616, died 1683, an English Puritan. Um, and I'm dev- looking at his theology, his doctrine of the Trinity and worship and all those things. And it could easily, one could easily um, elevate their studies on an individual more so than hopefully the reason why they're studying them in the first place, uh, to know God. Um, we study people in church history so that we could see how God worked through them and how they pointed to God, right? Um, and not to themselves. So, any more comments or reflections? Um, we're ending really well on time. Based on anything that we talked about, any questions? You can see the next page, Reflections for the Week. There's a short um, assignment you could do if you want to uh, develop your skill in historical, cultural context and developing that. You could do that. And then for preparation for next week, there's a very short, uh, basically, blog um, that's attached to this where we start to talk about the literary context for next week. All right, let me close out in prayer, and then I guess we'll be done. Lord, again, we praise you for who you are, Lord. We thank you for your son and how you have given him, Lord, to us. You have sent him here to this world, Lord, that so, so that he uh, may grow and um, live among man and then die, and so that we could have salvation through him, Lord. We thank you that he took our place upon the cross, Lord, that he was a substitute, Lord. Um, I pray that we will reflect often on that beautiful reality, Lord, that you have saved us from our sins, Lord, uh, that we deserve your wrath upon us uh, because of it, Lord. But because of your Son, you allow us to participate, Lord, in your family and be adopted as sons and daughters, Lord, And now we have the privilege, the opportunity to know you uh, better, Lord, based on what you have revealed to us about yourself in this word, Lord. And I pray that we will be uh, good stewards with your word, Lord, that we will be diligent in studying it and to interpret it properly, Lord, so that we may know you fully um, and as well as we can possibly as you allow us. I pray these things in your name. Amen.